The thoughts and opinions expressed on Halal Money Matters do not necessarily reflect the views of Saturna Capital, Amana Mutual Funds, or their affiliates. Welcome to Halal Money Matters, presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Monim Salam. And I'm Christopher Patton, Saturna's cultural attaché. So I'm really excited about today's episode, Chris. A good friend of mine, Shazi Imam, originally from the, the D.C. area, now lives in uh, Dallas. She actually started off in the tech field, but became a certified life coach. And what I really wanted to do was really focus this episode on women and investing. And so it, it's perfect because she actually runs a podcast called Feminine and Fulfilled. And if you want to know anything about Shazia and her, what she does as far as the life coaching is concerned, you can go to thelifeengineer.com. So without further ado, let's get started and talk to Shazia. Thank you, Shazia, for, for joining. The one thing that we always talk about is when you're talking about investments and finance, it's a fairly general topic, but there are some unique features about investment and finance when it comes to women in general. But I think even more particular when it comes to Muslim women and how they invest or how they think about investing. Right off the bat, generally speaking, can you want to just comment on that? Yeah. So this is something I'm really particularly interested in because historically or Traditionally, women don't talk about investing. Like it's not a conversation that we'll have at a dinner party. Um, and just speaking of dinner parties, I remember very distinctly, um, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, even I always wished I could be on the guy side, you know, traditionally for like Muslim dinner parties were separated. And so it would be the guys in one area and the girls in another and I would often find the conversation so much more interesting with the men because I'd be talking about investing and money and jobs and career. And um, I really enjoyed the conversation with women, but sometimes it would start to go to more of a superficial side that I just wasn't interested in. My sister said that before. I've had my wife say that before. But I know there's not a lot more professional women now than they're, they're in the Muslim community than they were before. Has the topics changed or are they pretty much the same? Um, it really depends. I mean, it, it really depends on the circle that you're around and what conversation comes up. So I actually started talking in the women's circles. I would start talking about money. And I found that women were really interested in the conversation. Now, not everybody, but it was actually refreshing to talk about money because women, even outside of the Muslim community, women are typically conditioned to believe that money is taboo right? You don't talk about money. It's not a nice conversation. And women are conditioned to talk about the right things and do the right things. But ultimately, we are just as curious about money and investing. We are wanting also to be wealthy. I mean, when I'm talking to professional women, they're wanting to be wealthy. They're wanting to grow. They're ambitious. So it's interesting when a space is created, how much people do want to talk about it. Now, do they want to talk about the nuts and bolts of like, here's my ticker symbol? No. But the conversation about how can we be making more money? Like, how can we grow our wealth? How can we have an impact? Because wealth and impact are related to each other. These are the kinds of conversations that women do want to have but they don't tend to happen naturally. I, I will bring it up and then people are interested, but it isn't natural in the social settings. But what I will say is with social media growing as much as it has, women are really starting to speak more about finance. And there are female leaders now in the space around finance and their followings are growing exponentially. 
because women are thirsty to know what they can do now. And finally, people are speaking to women. So I think there, it's still not enough. I, I still don't think it's the normal dinner conversation, but women are very interested for sure. And how do you, how do you start the conversation? One of the fun things, I'll just share this story that really was very interesting is um, back in my early 30s, I read a book called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And um, after I read that, I, I talked to a group of friends and I said, hey, do you guys want to um, start a millionaire's club? Like, let's start a millionaire's club, because if we're all talking about money, then we can all become millionaires. And so some people were so on board and some people were like, you're weird. But that conversation allowed us to talk about business ideas and wealth and how we're growing our money and, and just talking about money in general. And everybody in that group um, became millionaires. That's amazing. That's pretty fascinating. That's, that's really yeah. good. Kind of think about it saying like, if they give a conversations about spending, then you're going to spend a million dollars. If your conversations are about mm -hmm. investing, you're going to invest in a million, you know, that, that, that type of thing. It's just kind of your mind frame will kind of project. I want to go back a bit to, you were talking about kind of the social divide of like the men were talking about this and the women were talking about this. And you did an episode of your excellent, excellent podcast, Feminine Fulfilled, about good girl syndrome. And it wasn't specifically about money, but it was about the idea that if you're conditioned to uh, just kind of always be very polite and not disappoint anyone and just avoid conflict, um, and you're also conditioned that this conversation is happening elsewhere, I mean, how hard is that to fight through? And how important is it for men to recognize that's going on so that they can fight it also? You know, quite frankly, what can shift is that we just start having conversations. I think one of the big things that I would love to see, because there is a wage gap, is that women are talking more about what they make. I mean, that is probably the one that across the board, people are say it's taboo to talk about what you're making. But if we don't know what we're making, then how can we know if we're being compensated fairly? Um, and there's a lot more conversation now about equalizing wages. There is more conversation about how to negotiate salary, but I still think most people don't actually know. Most people are sitting in their own thoughts, feeling like they don't know how to deal with money. And the truth is, if we just talked more about it, it would make such a difference. For example, going back to the dinner party conversation, I think instead of men and women like sitting separate and having separate conversations, even if one of the husbands or one of the guys says, hey, Shazia, like, why don't you come over here? We're talking about X, Y, Z or asking the women, hey, we're talking about investments like just or we're talking about buying a second home or we're talking about whatever it is. What do you guys think? Just simply asking that. Oh, trust me, like we all have opinions instead of it always being like, oh, well, we're just in this corner over here and we're in this corner over here. I think just simply asking that question, what do you think? Not everybody, again, is going to come in, but the few women might, right? And then it just starts making it not a conversation of guys are doing this here and girls are doing this here. Like, I'm just over that. At the end of the day, we all have our interests. And I think especially in the Muslim community, that's also just a simple way to like stop separating everything. What I find is that from the clients that I meet up with, the couples or even families, you know, there's two main times that women get really interested in money, divorce or death, mm. right? They mm. get divorced. They need to figure out what exactly what to do. 
Somehow their husband passes away and now they're like, what do I need to do? So what kind of advice or thoughts that you have regarding how we can get women more educated when it doesn't come to these two things? That's really interesting. And I can see that. I can see that, you know, it's a wake up call. I think another thing is age too. I think people in general, men and women think about it when they're getting closer to retirement rather than early on, which is the best time when you're younger. One thing that I like to do when I think about inspiring others or, or, you know, getting people into the fold is I like to come from the framework of what can you achieve? Like instead of the how to's and the nitty gritty, like speaking to women from the perspective of, would you like to be wealthier so that you can have more for your family? You can make a bigger impact. You can take better vacations. You can, you know, I like to affirm on the positive. That's what I like to do. So I don't know if that would invite people in, if you can talk about it in a way that would be expansive, like you can have more money and, and start there. I mean, this seems really basic. I never hear anything like that. That's a good point. I mean, in a husband and wife conversation, you know, it, it seems like if you haven't done it for 20 years, you've never been really interested in, in in the money aspect. On the first day that a wife tells her husband, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about the finances? The husband's like, why? Why, why, why do you mm. want to know? It becomes very defensive. So it might be the, the husband's responsibility to talk to the wife and say, hey, look, I really need to explain this to you. I really need you to know where everything is. The burden might be on the husband to be able to bring in the wife because even the wife wants to wants to know there might be a fear. Do you notice that, like, would you say the majority of the couples that you work with, the women really defer at that level to their husband? Yeah, I I do. I do. And I I would agree with you then. Then the onus can come on to the husband. And again, asking a simple question, what do you think? I mean, sometimes we don't have to have some very complicated thing. Like, what do you think? Hey, I want to talk to you about this. Let's plan our goals. If things are happening in a silo, then the person has to reach across the other side and say, Hey, I, I want to talk to you about this. And what do you, what do you think about it? I always think the, what do you think question is always very inviting. Maybe she doesn't want to talk about all the nitty gritty, but she gets to like, give her opinion, give her thoughts. I mean, it's interesting because we're not talking about a situation where somebody's saying you're not supposed to have any access or talk about this. It's that the woman is choosing not to, which is really fascinating. In another episode of your podcast, you, you did one about wealth trauma. And there was talk about kind of generationally, if a family potentially is not used to working with money or having money and not having the skills when they did have it maybe would create um, trauma with money. But just the idea that like it has, it has to break at some point, someone has to uh, invite, like you're saying, someone has to reach over and say, let's do this together to Mm -hmm. kind of keep that from happening over and over again. For sure. And, you know, the other thing too is, and I see this for both men and women, people sometimes just think that they're bad at it. And when you think you're bad at something, right, because we also take that generationally, we might've witnessed our parents and fighting or whatever we witnessed around money. There's so many people who believe like, I'm just not good at money. So it's easier to just not look at it. It's easier to not be interested, forget all of the technical things. It is just easier to default and be like, well, you take care of it and I trust you and I'll make the money, but here you take care of it. But that core belief of either I'm not good at it or I don't want to learn it, that's not empowering somebody either. Now, how you shift that, somebody has to either reach across, like you said, or somebody has to have that drive besides divorce or death 
that makes them say, hey, I want to know more. And so, because I'm kind of stuck too, because I've always been interested in money. I always have. So I went after it, but I know I'm an anomaly. So let's do this. Let's break a, a woman's life into four different stages. Okay. okay. And let's talk about it and say what, where you would be and how, what's the conversation like? Teenage girl, right? When I'm either giving their money or they come into money, I've always told them divide it into three different areas, right? Spending on mm-hmm. yourself, giving to charity and investing. Mm-hmm. What would you say would be a conversation you would have uh, about what you would tell teenagers? So I would actually start before teenagers. When you have a daughter, start as soon as possible. So with Nasima, my bonus daughter, she's nine now. As soon as like she was even four years old, we were talking about her piggy bank, right? And we were talking about, okay, now let's learn how to count money. Empower your girls to feel that they're really good with numbers. I constantly tell Nasima, you're so good at math. Even before she was learning math, I was saying that to her already. And now she's nine and she says, I'm really good at math. And she gets hundreds on all of her math things because girls are socialized from the beginning to really feel like they're not good at numbers. They're not good at math. They're not good at science. So when you look at the STEM research, it's really important that girls are really encouraged early on. So the money conversation, I would put into that, start talking to them. If you're talking about the thirds as a teenager, kids can understand that too. Here's $3. Let's make three buckets. So very simple conversations, but very transparent. Also having transparent conversations about, you know, she'll ask us, well, how much do you make? So we tell her, we talk to her about those things because we've created an environment where talking about money is normal. So let's normalize the conversation from a very young age. And I would even recommend you talk about it more than you think you should, because we don't talk about it enough. So having those conversations. So I would say from child to teenage years, these conversations should just be happening around money, how to spend it, how you spend it, how you make it. If we can be that self-aware with our kids, we can change an entire generation. So this is really resonating with me because my daughter's seven. She loves math. She's checking some of the boxes that even when I was a kid, they like you're saying, they would have she would have been conditioned to think I'm not good with it in the same way that I was conditioned to think I'm not good with money because mm-hmm. and I came to learn that it wasn't that I wasn't good with money. It's just that my family never had money. So they would kind of joke with each other about, oh, we're bad at money. We're bad at money. And then there I was thinking, oh, I'm bad at money, but just didn't have the opportunity to like learn. And my daughter's the same way. So I want her to have good experiences with math and money and these things and to feel like she can do them. Um, and so, you know, when we go on vacation, for example, I usually give her some money. We have like a ledger and she has the amounts and I'm like, you can spend this however you want, but we're going to keep track of how much you're spending and what you spent it on just so she can see it moving in and out of her, her envelope throughout the trip. Um, but that stuff is so important. Um, all right. So moving on then. So the teenager goes to college, gets out of college and now starting off her professional career. In general, it would be great for people at that stage to have a mentor that is telling them exactly what to do. Uh, One of the things I like to do, because I'm really open about it, whenever I see somebody starting their first career and a woman, I will sit her down and I'll say, listen, put 10% away, start from the get-go. When you work with your paycheck at 10% already being invested into your 401k or into your retirement, you're just going to work with that amount. And I say, start now. Don't start later because you're going to get used to a bigger paycheck and you want to start now. 
Um, also wages, right? Did you negotiate for the best salary? You know, you have an opportunity to still ask for more money. You never talked to him about spending. No, because people will spend how they want. I'm not a budgeter, by the way. I don't teach any of my clients about budgeting. I always think about expansive. To me, budgeting is so limited. And if you just have the certain principles in place, you're putting away money for your retirement. You're putting money into whatever goals you need, like a savings account. If you're putting money into the right places, then spend how you want to spend. I mean, you can have a 401k balance and saving for your goal and still be in credit card debt. Oh, yes. I also tell young women to not get credit cards. I always tell them to get a charge card. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not carrying debt, unless, of course, you need student loans or something. I would never say no to that. But what I have noticed in women and in some of my clients is that when we talk about saving more so than creating buckets that can increase your money, there's a lot of shame, too, that exists. And so when people can't live to a budget or are suddenly like feeling like the way that they spend is wrong, that shame cycle can like really negate all of the good things that could happen. It's kind of like when people um, are trying to like eat well, and then they put themselves on a strict diet and then they mess up. And then all of a sudden they they're like binge eating. Yeah. Yeah. That energy is around money too. So I just trust that people will figure it out. But get the structures in place. Yeah, I've I've come across people that when the, when their daughters become professionals, um, they come to them with questions on money. And they're like, "Oh, that's okay. I'll just handle it for you." It's a lot, it's easier than teaching, right? So you're just like, "Don't worry about it. I'll I'll take care of it for you." And then and then you're you're not teaching anything, so they're they're not going to learn anything. It's just going to perpetuate. Yes. Them. So one thing that I do mention to people is do it if you need to help them to do it, but teach them along the way exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it. For what reason? Those type of things. That's it. Yes. And because I've gotten caught with my my daughters, like she got a part time job, but she had a four one k. And my mm-hmm. my gut instinct was to say, "Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it." But then I forced myself to say, "No, no, no. I can't do that. I have to teach her what's happening because eventually she'll have to do this on her own anyway." So yeah, if somebody's always taking care of it, then it's providing almost a savior mentality for girls too, which they don't need to be saved by it. Women can figure it out. That's why I think a mentor is good to guide them but not be doing it for that. I want to hear some more about the work you do with your clients. And you've touched a little bit on this, but how, what, how big of the piece is finance of that or little or big or a lot or what? I'm a transformational life coach. So I typically work with women to really meet their peak performance, whether it's in their career or their relationships or whatever it is that's going to bring them a deeper sense of fulfillment and also success. I do have some financial coaching clients. And so I'll work with them specifically around finances. And what I have found is I bring a beautiful harmony between the nuts and bolts of finance and then that mindset piece. Because if you only are talking about nuts and bolts, it's going to be one of like what you're you're witnessing in, in what you do. Most people don't care about the nuts and bolts. And if they don't care, and not to say it's not a good thing, but it's if they don't feel like they're good at it or they can do it or they don't actually just do the thing, then it doesn't matter all the things that are out there. And a lot of times the reason people don't do the nuts and bolts is because of the mindset piece, the shame, the money stories, the generational things that have come through. 
That mindset piece to me is the key and the core to all things, whether it's money, whether it's our success, whether it's how we feel about ourselves. And money most times is talked about so much as nuts and bolts and then wondering, well, why aren't more people doing the thing? Well, you have to get to the root of it. So I bring in this harmony between the two where I work with my clients. I work with women. We're able to get the nuts and bolts figured out in a very simple way while in parallel working through the mindset pieces as well. And they go on to really feel empowered around their money, to feel like, hey, I got this. I can be intimate and in relationship with my numbers. It's not scary. Oh, I can have my money working for me rather than feeling like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do next? Or it's so hard. Money and investing is actually not that hard. It's just some systems you put in place. And then like I say, like George Foreman's old commercials for the rotisserie chickens, set it and forget it. That's how I think of investing. We're not here to be day traders. That's not what making money is. It's just having some simple systems in place. So I support my clients in that, but also that mindset piece so that they feel strong and and successful and they go on to just really do well on their own. That's awesome. That's great. Okay, keep on going. She, so she, now they have a job and set to working professionally and they meet this great guy and now they're getting married. The two things that I that come to my mind when, it, when, when I think about marriage and finance and stuff is the first is the mahara, which is the dowry. And the second one is uh, inheriting debt. What do you mean by inheriting debt? Let me make sure we're on the same page. So there's two things that can happen, right? Number one is, is that you might've gone through college, you know, no debt, free, coming debt free, that type of thing, or you've paid off your student loans, but now you're marrying somebody um, that has a lot of student loans, right? And somehow you get into, oh, I'm gonna just help help him pay those off, right? That's mm-hmm. one part, of it, right? The second part of it is I've come across a lot of people that you know they actually when they get married, their husband wants to go to graduate school or whatever it is, so then they'll basically work until their husband graduates. Now I'm not saying one is bad or another; it's just it's a conversation. They needs to be mm-hmm. had without the, any assumptions about what should be done, what should not be done. I think you must have been talking about me when I was 23 and I got married. <laughs> <laughs> in my first marriage, um, I was that woman who I had paid off all my student debt and I had come in and I was ready. And my husband, my former husband, um, he had some debts, you know, so when you're describing that, it was reminding me of that. So you bring up two things. So the meher, the inheriting debt, I would add a third thing um, that I think is really important, which is the contract. That is something so beautiful in our religion that we do have a contract and we understand that marriage is the partnerships. You're coming into an agreement together. I can't tell you how many women do not care about the contract. And it is really important uh, because just the same thing, the inheriting debt. Now, I think when it's a fresh marriage, you're young and you're looking at life as like all this possibility, you think, oh, the contract doesn't matter. But it is really important to have measures in place that say you are protected. And I think this is a responsibility of the wali to really make sure that the contract reflects something that's fair for the man and the woman, because it's meant to be an agreement. So I just want to put a shout out for this particular thing because we don't talk about it enough. But when I got married again to my current husband, um, I was coming in with a number of assets and things. And we had a contract that stipulated what made sense for us. And for me, it was 
whatever I bring into this, if things don't work out in the end, then these are the things I brought in and these are the things I get to take out. And I think at 23, if I would have heard myself saying that, I would have been so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, like that's weird. And you love this person. And why would you be talking like that? But let's be honest and realistic. We need protections in place for women, especially. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you have this mahara issue in the first place, right? And in our natural instinct is to be able to say, don't ask or mm -hmm. don't ask for a lot. Or, mm -hmm. you know, $1 is enough <laughs> kind of a thing, right? So um, mm -hmm. what you kind of brings me back to most people know about or or don't know the compounding effect of money, the growth part mm -hmm. of it. So, you know, people talk about this, you know, there's a lady in Fatima and she saves from she's 20 until she's 30 and she saved this much. And then another one, Mariam, starts at 35, but she has to save 30 years before she makes the same amount of money. It's the idea of compounding. You started early. And it built for you faster, right? So imagine mm -hmm. if the mahar was higher amount, your compounding effects would be a lot more than mm -hmm. anything that, that, that you could do. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I think it's important for, like you said, the Walida parents to be able to insist on an amount, which is like Ali bin Abi Talib said, uh, an amount that's respectable for the status of the person you're marrying. I agree. I, I think when it comes to the actual dollar amount, I had somebody recently I had a client who was asking me what I thought the amount should be. And I said, you know, that's really, it's hard to quantify an amount, right, from a third party. But yes, the Wally, like the parents or the guardian, they should really think about that. Ask for something that is fair. I know that sometimes I've heard this conversation where I don't know what's happening with actual numbers, but I know that I've heard from some men that they think that women are asking for too much. And I just don't know what is too much, essentially. If this is a gift that's supposed to be given to the wife, then it doesn't all have to be paid up front either. Although my recommendation is it would be good for it to be paid up front because it starts getting complicated later and, on. And the compounding the effects works better if it's up front, right? I mean, I just think these conversations have to be had. The contract and the meher, the woman probably isn't going to do it. So this is where it is important that the people who are who are representing her speak about these things. Now, the inheriting debt, I think that's a conversation as a couple. But I think those things should be discussed prior to what debt do you have? What is your money situation? I think those conversations need to be had. And again, those aren't nobody's really talking about it. It's rose colored in the beginning. I feel like this comes up on our show a lot, but especially in the, the state planning episode we did where it's like, it's an uncomfortable conversation. People don't want to have it. And so many of these things could be solved or so much could be prevented just by having the conversation. And I know on your show, you've talked about, you need to be willing to be uncomfortable to avoid certain things. Especially the idea of like when the wife goes, goes to work so the husband can go to graduate school or you know whatever it is. Sometimes it works out great, but other times there's a bitterness there. Hey, I paid for your education kind of a thing. But but there is a bitterness because the, that conversation was never had. And then also the, around the same time, now we're getting into from, from marriage to midlife, which is, you know, giving up your uh, a career to be able to take care of the kids at home. Right. What is that? Mm -hmm. worth? That, that, that's a that's a money thing as well. Right? I mean, you know, you're that's giving so up true. earning potential for your 401k. You're giving up all of these things. And so you can't look back 30 years later and say, well, you, you know, I, although I chose to do it, I did it on my own. No, it, it was a conversation. But again, it needs to be had. I will say one thing about this third phase in life. A lot of people now are doing premarital counseling. I think it's become much more the norm. 
I, I really think training of these counselors to have this question asked, like the money conversation and maybe a list of suggested questions. How much money do you make? How much debt do you have? Like very like really straight to the point kinds of questions that the premarital counselor can bring up so that those conversations are had because they have to be had. Otherwise, you're going to find out sooner or later. So I, I know you know this person. So I know Imam Majid out of Virginia has 100 questions that he does before mm-hmm. you get married. Do you know if any financials are on there or not? There are because um, Antonio okay. and I had used those questions, okay. but they were still a little bit vague. Okay. That's, that's a good idea. But yeah, maybe asking him to put more of the financial related questions on there would be good. Like there should be a worksheet. Like I'm just imagining a worksheet and, you know, you can fill it out and maybe you give it to the counselor. You know, it's just something where you are having the conversations that finance is the number one reason that people have problems. Yeah. And it's probably the least talked about thing initially. Okay. So we talked about midlife. Anything else on the midlife part? Every couple should be speaking to an estate planner. I mean, that is a must. Families need to know what is happening with their estate because sometimes even the woman's thinking the man's taking care of it, but the man has no idea what's happening either. And it's just important to have those conversations. What I, you know, there's one thing I want to say, it's not related to these phases, but it's related to something I did a workshop on recently called the wealth languages and speaking in the language of wealth. So similar to how we've talked, you know, you may know about love languages and speaking to your partner, your loved one in a language that resonates with them. I came up with wealth languages, and this is a way to speak in the language of wealth that resonate with each person because it's different for all of us. I think if we start to understand our wealth language and those around us, we can start having meaningful conversations rather than fighting about it or or putting our head in the sand. I think those are the conversations that are really important between couples, between families to have. And when you talk about how money matters to people, then people will start talking. I absolutely want to hear them. Uh, Words of affirmation, physical touch me over here. Um, <laughs> for your love languages yeah, I love yeah. it. And it seems I mean it's just like creating a common ground and it demystifies so much it moves you like part way down the road almost instantaneously in that case so I, I would love to hear what the languages are there's seven languages um this is from like all my like various learnings I came together with these seven so the first one is luxury this is the one that we typically think of when it comes to wealth luxury is People who like status and buying the finer things in life and eating at the finer places and having VIP status. Luxury is one of the languages. I'm making a generalization here, but I think men tend to think that women's language is luxury. But I will tell you anecdotally, the majority is not. But let's just put luxury there. Um, That can also be the nice homes, the nice cars, the all of the things. The second language is freedom. So freedom is wealth for the ability to do what you want, when you want, how you want. This is about having freedom in your life, financial freedom, time freedom, not having to follow the rules. So somebody with this language doesn't want to be told what to do. They want to do it the way that they want to do it. So coming in and being like, these are the five ways to invest is going to be like the most boring thing to them ever. (laughs) This is actually one of the languages I've seen a lot of people speak in, but let me, I'm going to wait and hear what you guys, what yours are at the end. The next one is comfort. The wealth language around this is that 
You want to feel safe and secure. You use money as a means to make sure that you're taken care of. So people with the language of comfort do tend to be good about nuts and bolts. They're the people who know what's happening with my accounts. Are things growing? Am I good? Am I safe? But they tend to also be risk averse. So freedom, people with the language of freedom might take a big risk, but people with comfort are like, no, 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 let's slow and steady wins the race because it's about the security. Then you can move into the next language, which is power. So power is when you care about making that impact. This is for the people like the activists who are out there or the nurturers that are out there, people who want to use their wealth to empower others, creating generational wealth, being in a place where your dollars mean something. You can make a difference because now you have wealth. Power, I find, is one that's really important to a lot of people, but it's not talked about in the context of wealth. We tend to separate the two. We tend to think of like, oh, this person is charitable or this person is powerful and this person is good with money as they're three different things, but they can actually all just be related to this language of power. Another language is connection. Wealth to somebody with the language of connection is about making meaningful connections. It's about being able to pick up the phone and say, hey, hey, madam, how are you doing? I want to do something. How can you support in that? Because I know that you're well connected. I know that you're at this place in your life or at this level in your career. What can you do? But even deeper than that, people with the language of connection want to be able to create connected experiences. These are the people who will go on experiences. They want to spend their money on things that deepen relationships, deepen their connection with people that they know or they don't know. And that's what matters to them. Another language is magic. So magic is interesting because we don't talk about magic, especially in the Muslim community. (laughs) We're like, that's a bad word, but I want you to hear me out here. The language of magic is people who are interested in transformation. These are the people who, if you've ever met somebody and they're like, you'll never believe what happened, but I won this thing, like this vacation, or I thought that, you know, I imagined I wanted this car and then all of a sudden there was a sale on it. You know, so the language of magic is actually almost kind of creating out of nothing, but it's the people who are able to transform things with their wealth. These are the trendsetters in the world. These are the people like a Steve Jobs probably had the language of magic where he created a whole new paradigm in how we use our electronics. This is a really interesting one because the language of wealth is also people who are very creative, will have a great idea and it turns into a business success. The people who will score that really great deal. And so people with this language, they really thrive on that innovation and that transformation. The last language is romance. It's not about love or romantic things. Romance is more about the leisure of wealth, being able to take an extended period off of work or really enjoy a great lunch with a friend and not having to worry about the next thing to do or taking that beautiful getaway and just not worrying. It's stress-free and just having that ability, that spaciousness and wealth being the thing that gives you that. Wealth to you isn't about the things that you amass, but that spaciousness and leisure that it allows you in life. So these are the seven languages. So tell me, which ones are you? 
for me, it's absolutely comfort. You know, when I think about my finances, uh, I grew up without a lot of money. To me, it's like, oh, if I could just feel safe and secure, that's the A1 goal. And then, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to also say like, you know, after that, there's definitely some freedom involved because I don't like to be told what to do. I kind of push back and uh, the idea that I can do whatever I want is very appealing, but I got to feel that comfort first. So that would be my like one A and one B for me, probably. (laughs) I love the one A, one B. Oh my God, that's so technical. (laughs) How about you, Manam? I don't have an order for this, right? But I would say comfort, power, and connection. I would probably say power and comfort are almost equal. The transformative power of being able to give charity and help people out and that type of thing is it's it's really, really great. And and when when you were talking about this, I just remembered the story of Khadija, right? And and, and mm-hmm. her story is all about being able to having the the wealth to be able to help the prophet and the community in times when there was a boycott. People just think the boycott was there and everybody was fine. No, somebody was still financing the boycott. And it was her wealth that was doing it, you know, that type of thing. So um, yes, those would be my three. Um, For me, my languages are freedom is my number one and power for sure Mm. are there. And then I have comfort too. I can't help it. Let's talk about through midlife. And then we're talking about death. Now, midlife is one, one thing we talk about is zakat, right? Uh, because a lot mm-hmm. of what I find, uh, again, a lot of women don't calculate for themselves and let their husbands calculate the cut, even if they have their own wealth. That's one part of it. The death aspect, we we talked about two different things, right? One is the husband passed because you're older now, your husband passed away but before you. And statistically, that is going to happen. So you're going to have to come to that stage where you have to take care of your finances yourself. But it doesn't have to be your husband passing away. It may be, you know, you're now passing away, but how do you leave a legacy behind? There was something that Anse Tamara Gray had said a while back, which I think is really important that all women know is that we are responsible for our own zakat. We can't have somebody taking care of it for us. And I don't think that that's known. So even just that knowledge being made aware is really important so that a woman can't just skirt around the issue. She has to know her finances at that point. And then again, it goes back to, you know, when we're talking about death and, and this stage of life, again, it goes back to that estate planning conversation. I mean, I actually think it's interesting. I didn't think I'd be talking about that at all today, but it's very interesting how important that conversation is because these conversations get to be had before the spouse dies or you die. And now everybody's trying to figure it out. And one of the things that I, I think about is that I would never want to burden somebody with having to figure out the expenses for my burial or what to do afterwards. It's a gift to give people that you have already outlined all of these things. I think the estate planning, the wills conversation, these things, talking about it at that midlife are really important. And women understanding that but it's an amana on you to know what your zakat is, to be responsible, and then to ensure that whatever needs to be discussed and taken care of is done prior to either you or if you are you know in in a marriage that it's discussed if you don't specifically state it out it could get into a legal mess when that happens it's better have everything cleared out your instructions are clear rather than getting into the situation where they might not win the lawsuit or the custody battle but just going through that for the children and for yourself it hurts it's a little bit of a hard conversation just for a little bit of time i think sometimes we think things are bigger than they are they're not You know, talk to an estate planner, talk to your financial advisor, talk to your mentor, talk to whoever it is in any phase of your life 
and get certain things set in place. And then you don't have to think about it anymore yeah. after that. Sharjah, thank you so much. This has been really, really great. Personally, I've learned a lot and I really like the conversation about uh, the wealth languages. Well, thank you so much for having me. I just think, again, it goes back to the dinner party. I kind of feel like we did that today. Yeah. Chris, do you have any final thoughts? Thank you very much. Keep up the great podcasting work. You've got a new listener in me. I'll be following along. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. The Amana Funds are distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services, member FINRA and SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, the investment advisor to the Amana Funds. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax accounting or legal advice to our clients and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.